and welcome to the Biosad Podcast. I'm Alex Miller with the editorial team, and today we're happy to have a newcomer to the pod, Craig Miller, who leads the government systems team here at Biosad. Thanks a lot for being on the podcast today, Craig. It's good to have you. Hey, Alex. Thanks for having me. This is really exciting. Um, and like you said, it's the first time, but hopefully this will be the first of many. For sure, because there's so much going on in, in government systems. So I'm sure there'll be a lot to talk about. So the government systems team produces more than $1 billion in revenue for the company today with a, a wide range of battle space networking, SATCOM, and cybersecurity support for the U.S. military and defense agencies, as well as to global allies. So, uh, Craig, you started in, in the position as president of government systems in May of last year, but you've been at Viasat for over 25 years. I think you started as an intern, right? Yeah, I did. I, I've been around here for a bit. I Actually, the first day at work for me at Viasat was in May of 1993, and I worked here as an intern when we were still upstairs from the dentist office and next to the hair salon over at Museo <laughs> del Norte. And so we, we've come a long way since then with, uh, you know, dozens of buildings here in Carlsbad and um, I think more than 40 sites around the world. So it's been an incredible journey here at Viasat. Right. Can you give us kind of an overview of your own trajectory at Viasat? Like, so you started as an intern and, and kind of where'd you go and how'd you get to where you are today? Yeah, it, for sure. And so, you know, I, I've had a pretty varied career here too. I, I've done a lot of different jobs over the years. I, I started as a software engineer, which was actually quite a bit different. My background is in electrical engineering and communication systems theory. And I, the first few jobs I did here were networking and software engineering. I wrote one of the very early performance enhancing proxies for a product called ADCIP, which is one of the advanced data controllers. And I think we still sell some of those products here nearly 30, uh, 30 oh, odd wow. years later. I did some work on some of the encryption products here. And so I've worked on the HAPI encryptors here. I worked on the commercial side for a while on connection by Boeing. Um, in the intervening years, I, I've done a variety of different jobs. I've moved on from software. I did system engineering. I've done a little bit of hardware engineering. I've worked in business development. I've done some program management. I ran a small business here. I started the government space business. And so we, we still have a, a thriving space business here that I, I gestated about three or four years ago. I was also the CTO for the government systems business uh, in my spare time while I was doing that. And then Last May, I took over as president of government systems. So it's been uh, it's been an interesting journey, to be sure. Yeah, for sure. It sounds like a never dull moment, and you've had a, a really cool uh, career arc there. I, I'm always looking for something different. You could argue I have a short attention span, but I'm always looking for new challenges, and I'm always looking for new problems. And there's there's never been a shortage of those here at Biosat, which is really one of my favorite things about working here. Is there's always always been something new to do or to try. Well, uh, let's um, shift to today's landscape for the world of defense and military communications that you're so embedded in. So just to start off, what are some of the hot topics in defense that industry you think will be focusing on in 2022 and beyond? Are, are things changing much? Yeah, it's it's a period of, of transformational change. It, it probably, looking back on this, we'll, we'll look at this time as a generational change in, in military operations and military communications. And, and we're seeing a couple different ways that this is changing. And it's driven largely by the fact that we're changing, the, the global geopolitical landscape has changed radically. And so for the last 30 or so years, the United States was truly the only superpower. And so we, we were sort of unrivaled in, in our capabilities. And mostly we were involved in asymmetric conflicts against people or groups that didn't have anything close to our technology and didn't have anything close to our resources in terms of manpower, equipment, or money. 
And so we've spent the time designing systems that work in those environments. And in the meantime, we're having peer adversaries that have emerged both in Russia and in China. Both of those countries have exceptionally capable military capabilities. And especially in the case of China, they, they have an economy that rivals the economy of the United States. So we're not going to just win by outspending them 10 to 1. And so with, with that as a backdrop, you're seeing a focus on a couple different ways to respond to that. One is what we're seeing in terms of multi-domain operations, or sometimes they call it joint all-domain operations. And that's the ability to use air and sea and space and land and even cyber as a warfighting domain together. And the reason it's important to use them together is against a peer adversary, there's no guarantee that you're gonna have dominance in all of the domains as we have in the past, or that we have dominance in any given domain at any given location. So we have to have the ability to use air and sea together if space isn't available or land and space together if we don't have air superiority. And so the ability to flexibly shift data and move data around between these domains and have interconnectivity between these domains is going to be key in the next phase of conflict if we ever have a conflict with a peer adversary. One of the other things we're seeing, and this is tangentially related to not being able to outspend our adversaries in terms of military spending, is the use of as-a-service models for some of these capabilities and the, the heavy and extensive use of commercial capabilities for warfighting effects. And we'll start to see things like SATCOM as a service. You see increased interest from the DOD in 5G and 5G technologies and the use of those commercial technologies for warfighting effects. One of the other things that, that comes along with this as you have more complicated networking and more networks and distributed networks and um, heterogeneous networks that include purpose-built military capabilities interacting with commercial SATCOM and 5G capabilities, cybersecurity, is going to have an increased challenge to secure those types of networks. And so we're going to see cybersecurity perhaps not only as a warfighting domain, but perhaps the most important warfighting domain when we think about bringing all these domains together. So you touched on uh, you know the multi-domain operations, and, and I wanted to ask just to get a deeper dive into that. So there is that big challenge to get communications aligned over not just between the branches, but within the branches, and and they call it uh, the JADC two project. And can you talk about why that's such a, a priority for the for the U.S. DoD as well as other U.S. allies? Yeah, uh, the, the core of it again, the why is is really the need for all different missions, capabilities, users to be able to interoperate in a, in a flexible pattern because not any given capability might be available all the time. And so we need to be able to interoperate in ways that we hadn't predicted or in ways that we hadn't done before because the adversary might have the ability to take our first choice away from us. And so we have the, we have to have the ability to, to flexibly communicate and move data around. And that that's the sort of why of joint all-domain command and control this is a hard problem. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, historically we've been really bad at this uh, because we haven't had to do it. And so not only have different domains not communicated well with each other, we have a past of sometimes elements in the same domain don't communicate well together. And the, the common example that everybody talks about is the two different fifth generation fighters, the F-22 and the F-35. They're actually built by the same company. They use tactical data links that aren't interoperable. And so our, our two frontline highest technology fighter aircraft don't interoperate together. And so not only do we have to figure it out across all domains, we have to figure it out in the same domain too. And so 
all of this has to happen at the same time because we're not going to be able to fight effectively if we can't interoperate. And that, that means air to air, air to ground, ground to sea, and space and cyber all working together as well. Right. And so the, you know, the DOD sees this challenge uh, very clearly. And so they really got a, a big effort uh, out to do it. So it, it seems like Viasat's kind of uniquely positioned to help with that. Can you talk about some of the ways that uh, we are already and, and will in the future? Yeah. And really, Viasat was born to do JADC2. If you think <laughs> right. about the things we're good at and the things we've been doing for decades, it is JADC2. And in government systems first, and I'll expand that to what we do commercially, there's really three pillars of what we we do very well in government systems, and that's uh, tactical data links, and that's basically edge connectivity between land, sea, and air. And we're, we're starting, and Link 16 is the cornerstone of that business. And so we've been the world's leading Link 16 provider for decades, right, in terms of the programmer records and the innovative products we bring, like the BATS-D, which is the handheld Link 16, which allows dismounted foot soldiers to communicate with airborne and sea assets. And one of the things we're doing in government space is we're launching a satellite called XVI, which is a LEO satellite that provides Link 16 capability from space. And so it turns Link 16, which has been throughout its career as a line of sight network, it'll extend Link 16 into a beyond line of sight network. And so we're taking our tactical data links that already connect land, sea, and air, and adding an overhead space layer to do that. Another area that Viasat's really exceptional at is cybersecurity and information assurance. And so we have a long history of creating type one encryption devices and a long history of moving data around securely based on, on the experience we've done. We've been doing that since the 90s as well. That was one of the early projects I worked on here. And so, you know, Viasat is a world leader in encryption and data security. And then when you combine that with the commercial satellite capabilities we have and the ability to create world-leading satellite capability, the intersection of those things of multi-domain tactical data links and broadband connectivity and information assurance and cybersecurity to glue it all together securely, nobody else is like that. And Viasat is different and differentiated in that way. And we're really excited about JADC2 because when you think about what JADC2 is, it's taking all these different networks, gluing them together securely and making sure the data gets to the right place, to the right person at the right time. And that, that's what Viasat does. That's what we are and that's what we've been for decades. So we're very excited about this JADC2 initiative because when you think about, you know, historically defense has been about platforms, building ships and planes. And, you know, there's an established set of big primes that do that and we're never gonna displace them doing those things. But when it comes to networking and moving data around, nobody's better at it than we are. And we're really excited about that. All right. So, uh, so yeah, JADC2 is kind of the overall effort. And then each branch has its own effort. Is there one in particular that, you know, we think of uh, as kind of leading the way or is it all sort of uh, moving ahead together? And, and also, what about some of our allies? The interesting thing, and, you know, th this is a hard problem, right, JADC2? And so the fact that there's several different initiatives shows that it's hard to figure out how to do this. And so JADC2 is the DOD level overarching vision and mission to do this, but the Army has Project Convergence and the Air Force has uh, ABMS and the Navy has Project Overmatch. And so e each of these initiatives that's going on in different areas, and this is something that's historically happened is a lot of times the services do their own thing. In, in this case, 
there's some alignment and there's some overlap and there's some things are doing different, but really that's okay. If you think about it in terms of a, of a market almost, where if we're trying different things, the market's going to decide which one works. So it's okay that there's these different initiatives that aren't perfectly aligned. I think the one we've worked the most with is probably ABMS and we're closest with the Air Force in that initiative. We, we do have a very large IDIQ contract to support task orders on that. But we, we're involved with the Navy with Overmatch, and we're involved with the Army and Project Convergence as well. And we, we stick our toe in the water in a lot of these different initiatives. And we're, we're engaged at the DOD level as well, trying to guide the vision of what JADC2 is, because there's, there's a lot of ways to try to do this. And there's a lot of ways to try to do it wrong. And there's a few ways to try to do it right. And we're trying to steer them to use some of the same solutions that have proven successful in commercial networking. Because if you think about what the internet is, that's the ultimate JADC2 experiment where you connect an incredibly varied group of users that use different transport um, networks to interact with each other. But it's all sort of seamless. And I, I don't think about when I'm using my cell phone, if it's on Bluetooth or LTE or Wi-Fi, and I don't really think about the connection my computer uses. And I don't really think about how my car is connected to the internet. But those things are all interconnected and it works seamlessly. And there's, you know, there's many decades of gateway technology and networking protocols that have worked together to create that sort of decentralized, super resilient, super seamless integration that's meant to move big data around. And if we learn those lessons and copy those successes, JADC2 can be very successful. If we try to build a monolithic solution, we probably are going to get ourselves in trouble. And that's one of the things that we're trying to influence um, the decision makers to to learn the lessons of the successes that have already been had. And so for that, do you see uh, the private sector as just being a really important uh, piece of that puzzle? Uh, more than an important piece of the puzzle, the, you know, the private sector has proven how these problems can be solved and how these problems can be solved at scale with billions of users. And if you think about what JADC2 needs to do, there may be millions, small numbers of millions of users in terms of warfighters, but there will be billions of devices associated with the next conflict. And so you, these problems need to be solved at scale. And this, this has been done commercially, and those are the models that have to be used. And so not only will commercial solutions be a key player, it has to be the cornerstone and it has to start with commercial and then put the special sauce on it to make it a defense solution. And that that's really what Viasat has done for our, our whole career too. And that's why we're really well positioned for this too. Right. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. So uh, I wanted to switch to space just a little bit. Uh, I want to ask you about the national defense space architecture, which is being led by the space development agency or the SDA. So can you tell me a bit about uh, more about this SDA initiative and, and why it's so important and how Viasat's in a, in a position to help there? Yeah, and this is really interesting. And so historically, government space has been a small number of very exquisite platforms, very exquisite, very expensive platforms. And, you know, when we talked about earlier how, you know, exquisite platforms probably aren't going to win the next conflict, you need to have large numbers of things that can move data around effectively. The NDSA is probably the government's nod to that. And it's a proliferated LEO architecture. And the, the interesting thing about the Space Development Agency is that it was created outside any one of the services. And so it's a DOD research and engineering um, organization right now. Historically, this was done by the Air Force and the, the portion of the Air Force that normally did this stuff became the Space Force. And so normally this is the domain of the Space Force to build these kind of assets. But 
for whatever reason, the, the government decided that the Air Force wasn't moving fast enough or in the right way. And so they created something outside the scope of that. And so SDA has created, um, they, they've acquired two tranches. They work in an iterative pattern. And so they call their systems tranches. They're through CDR on what they call tranche zero. So they haven't launched any of the, the NDSA yet. But later this year or next year, they should launch the first set of a couple dozen satellites, which are their, their experimental tranche zero satellites. Um, they recently have awarded their second set of satellites, tranche one, which is a little over 100 satellites that provide capabilities for broadband communications, um, Link 16, and they're also cross-linked together in a mesh network. And so the, the thing that you can point to success about what they've done is they've acquired those very quickly and at low cost compared to what other government programs have done. And so they're not necessarily super low cost compared to what some of the, the mega constellations are launching their satellites at, but compared to what they spend on typical government platforms, these are very low cost. So they've gone very fast and they've gone at very low cost. And so if you look at it sort of as an economic experiment, it's already been wildly successful, even though they haven't flown a single satellite yet in the NDSA. So uh, does XVI fit into that scenario? Yeah, and, and, and so XVI existed before SDA and the NDSA, and XVI will fly before any of the SDA satellites. So the, it'll function as sort of um, an advanced prototype, and a lot of the data and learnings that we'll get from XVI will translate into the NDSA architecture that SDA is doing. And you know, Viasat is going to build and fly XVI well. And so Viasat's in a, a really good position for Link 16 and space based on this. And can you give us an idea of where the XVI project is today? At this point, we're, we're pretty close to having the system buttoned up. We've gone through um, spacecraft and payload integration, and we're waiting basically on the launch vehicle now. And so we expect it to launch later this year. And it's it's been delayed a couple of times, but one of the things that's hard about space, and we'll probably touch on this on, on another platform later in this interview, is that the launch manifests are very congested right now, and it's hard to find a ride into space. And so what happens is you, you have a couple week delay in developing the system or integrating and testing the system, and that leads to a many month delay because you miss your launch window and you can't get another launch for six months. And so that's right. basically where we are now with XVI is we've got the satellite and the systems pretty close to complete, and we're just waiting on the ride, basically. Good. Well, I look forward to seeing that one. Definitely. It's a, it's a really interesting story, that whole game. Yeah, yeah we're, we're really exciting. And it's this also sort of reflects Biosat's multi-orbit strategy and multi-orbit interest. And Biosat, you know, the, the commercial satellites we make are the biggest, most powerful satellites ever built in geo or anywhere else. But XVI is a 12U Satellite, it's not quite a CubeSat, but it's basically the size of a bar refrigerator. The thing weighs about um, 50 pounds. So it, it's really interesting that a company like Viasat can make these small, highly capable satellites, and then the these gargantuan double-decker bus-sized satellites for, for broadband comms, and really everything in between. And that reflects how interesting and diverse Viasat is. Yeah, it's, it's a good point. One of my questions was to talk a little bit about that. The Viasat is certainly known for more of those, you know, really big ultra high capacity KA band satellites that are that are in that high geostationary orbit or geos, but but there is a lot of activity on the low Earth orbit side of things, you know, the LEOs and and some of that does fall into the defense realm, you know, and, and we were just talking about XVI and also with the space development agency. So, you know, so we've got the XVI project going on, but that's you know, that's kind of a, a kind of a first step. What's uh, what's your take on how Viasat is gonna 
fit into that whole thing uh, moving forward. Yeah, and, and there's there's more to come. And there's actually, you know, XVI isn't our first small satellite. Viasat has actually launched and has operationalized uh, another mission. Uh, we don't we don't talk a lot about it, but there is another small sat we've done. And I can't go into any of the specifics of it, but XVI is not our first one. And so we already have a heritage there. XVI will continue that. And there, there will be follow-on missions to XVI. We're already working with the same customer that we are partnered with XVI on to work on basically the next thing after that. And the, there's other missions coming down the pipe too. So we'll see a proliferation, uh, if you will, of small sat missions that Biosat's going to be involved in in the defense space. And then one of the other things that we're going to see in the LEO domain, and this is sort of backstopped by the Viasat 3 system. One of the things that's really interesting about Viasat 3, and I know I'm jumping ahead, is it's able to provide relay services to LEO satellites. And so if you think about the commercial air use case where you're on an airplane and your signal goes up to the geosatellite and then back down to the ground, we can do the same thing with LEO satellites. And so if you think about an Earth observation satellite that's taking pictures of Earth or doing radar or atmospheric analysis or any any of the number of reasons that there's satellites in LEO orbit looking at Earth to do things, we can stream that data right off the satellite through Viasat 3 and down to the ground basically in real time, which is a huge departure because typically you have to wait for the LEO satellite to fly over a ground station somewhere. And that can be as much as a half hour and those get congested, and sometimes it can take 90 minutes or several hours to get data off a LEO satellite. And one of the things we're going to be able to provide is basically real-time streaming off LEO satellites. And I, I think that's a really exciting capability and shows Viasat's ability to, to leverage multiple orbits to create capabilities that are different than anyone else. Yeah, it's fascinating, the multi-orbit strategy, because, you know, there's, there's a lot of talk about, like, you know, Leo's the best or Geo's, and it's like, you know, our position is they're all good. They all work together and and do a lot of amazing stuff as, as an integrated system. So it's really cool. Yeah, and that, that, that's a really important point. As engineers, we, we, we think about trades all the time. And in space, that's true, too. There is no best orbit. There is no best frequency, and so we do our uh, we do a lot of work at K band, and we do a lot of work at Geo, and so we we like that combination for broadband communications, and it, it's able to serve a, a diverse array of users from millions of residential users up into aircraft and everything in between. But that's not the best solution for every single mission, and so for some missions, different bands are better. So, for example, the Navy uses X band at maritime a lot because it, it penetrates through water really well. And so there, there's different reasons why you would use different frequencies. There's different reasons why you would use different orbits. Um, obviously people talk a lot about latency. And so if you're very concerned about 10 millisecond latency versus a couple hundred millisecond latency, there, there's reasons to use LEO or MEO is often an excellent compromise in terms of coverage and latency. And when you when you think about networks, you, you have to understand what your data really has to do. And do users really care about latency or do 5% of your users care about latency? And can you create a system where the bulk of the data goes over the geo where you have resilience and security and economic advantages and maybe 5% of the data goes over a LEO or a MEO system? And th those are the types of things we're thinking about. How do you mix these different systems to create a seamless network experience and really get the best of both worlds? And if you tie that all the way back, that's kind of what JADC2 is. And that's that's what we've been doing for a long time. And that's what we're going to continue to do. 
All right. Well, that, that's a great transition to my next question, which is to talk about that expanded network and it's connecting all these sensors and platforms across battle spaces with, you know, there's an aircraft in the air, there's a guy on the ground. So it raises a lot of security concerns. So how do you balance that security with, with that uh, bigger defense network capability? Yeah. And it's a hard problem. And there's, um, it's called Metcalfe's law in the networking world, which says basically the utility of a network is proportional to the square of its users. And so the argument here is that connecting all of these different users together makes the network more useful and therefore makes the users more useful. And we talked earlier in the interview about why we have to do this, because we can't guarantee that some of the thing, some of the communications paths we've relied on in the past will ever be there. And so we have to create these networks that are more useful. There's sort of a, a dark corollary to that as well, in that when you connect networks together and when you connect more users together, I don't know if the vulnerabilities are proportional to the square of the users or it's an even bigger number, but basically you exponentially increase your vulnerabilities as you connect more networks and more users together. And so that that has to be considered from the ground up as you connect these networks. And the, the truth is some networks are just more secure than others. And so when you connect one network to another network that's not nearly as secure, you're exposing that more secure network to additional attack vectors. And that, that has to be understood. It has to be analyzed. It has to be tested. And you have to create systems that account for that. And a lot of, a lot of the newer um, direction in cybersecurity, and that's really not that new, we've been doing this for years and others have been doing this for years, is you, you sort of have to forget about boundary defense. And the, the old way of thinking about this, and sometimes the government still thinks about it this way, is that I'm going to air gap my network or I'm going to create a secure boundary around my network. And then I'm going to say that thing's bulletproof. And then inside that boundary, we're secure. That doesn't work. That will fail every single time. Even in an air gap network, you're going to have insider threats. And we've seen this happen over and over again, where somebody brings a hard drive in or a CD-ROM or a flash drive. And the next thing you know, your network's compromised. Sometimes it's on purpose. Sometimes they just wanted to listen to music. But that model of boundary-based security, it doesn't work anyway. And then when you connect different networks, you're obviously breaking the boundary. And so you, you have to take an approach where you basically assume that everything in the network is compromised. And this is generally called in the industry a zero trust approach. Sometimes it's called variable trust, but the idea is that nothing in the network is trusted and you have to look at behavioral analytics and basically a mountain of data to say, is this thing behaving like it should be, or is it doing something that looks like malware or is it doing something that looks like an intrusion? And when you make the assumption that everything could potentially be compromised and you're constantly looking at how it behaves, you get a lot better at identifying threats and intrusions, and you also get a lot better at preventing things from moving laterally in the network. And this is something that we've done on our commercial network. This is something that we do in our cybersecurity operations center every single day. And th this is one of Viasat's core capabilities. And when I talk about Viasat being good at cyber, this is exactly the type of thing we're really good at. We're really good at taking basically the existing COT solutions and, and intrusion detection solutions and our own behavioral analytics and all the tools that everyone else uses and then putting our special sauce on top of them. And we have a staff of analysts that do this. And we have a staff of data scientists that do this. And we're constantly improving our automation that does this behavioral analytics. And this, this is one of the things that's, that makes Viasat really special. And this is one of the things that's going to be really important because a behavioral analytics-based 
variable trust approach is how you secure these infinitely complicated mixed networks. And that's the only way you have a hope of securing them. Yeah, it is a huge challenge. Uh, but yeah, it really is interesting, you know, the way Bias said, unlike a, a lot of companies in this space, is that we do have this big commercial side and we have lots of residential and business subscribers on our network. And and some of what happens in that space informs uh, security on, on the other side and, and vice versa, right? Yeah, it does. And actually, um, one of the things that's to our benefit about being a commercial ISP is that we, we actually see enough data with our million or so subscribers that we have a pretty complete sample space uh, of the malware that's out there. And so obviously, you know, there's ISPs like Verizon and Comcast and others that have tens of millions or hundreds of millions of users, and they're they're way bigger than us, but we actually have just enough that we have the sample space. And so we basically see everything. And so uh, our, our tools get exposed to everything and we're we're big enough that we, we have that whole sample space and we're able to leverage those attacks. And a lot of times what you see is you, you see the genesis of advanced persistent threats and the, the sort of things that state-sponsored actors do. Sometimes their tools you know, aren't deployed, but sometimes you, you see indications of, of those type of effects. And so the things we learn uh, over a commercial network, they directly apply. And a lot of times we've been able to have our analytics learn something from something that's on the commercial network that has effectively protected the defense network. And likewise, we work with the government, we work with NSA, and we work with DHS, and they provide us some of their, their signatures that are our government-used signatures that are oftentimes a little a bit ahead of the commercially available signatures for detection of effects. And those are used to protect our commercial network as well. Right. And I think we're one of only a handful of companies that have that, uh, that kind of advanced warning. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. There's, o- there's only a few, um, few companies that are, and this is a DHS program called Enhanced Cybersecurity. And we have a product that's basically a modified version of one of our encryption devices. And if you think about what an encryptor does, it's a device that on one side of it, it connects to a classified network, which is usually called a red network. And on the other side, it connects to an unclassified network, which is a black network. And it holds keys for encryption. And those keys are actually classified, but it's a device that is allowed to be on a classified network and an unclassified network with classified information. And what the device is able to do, the modified crypto can take classified signatures. So it can take classified malware or classify cyber effect signatures and hold them on an unclassified network, just the same way you would hold keys in an encryptor. And it's able to look at the unclassified data that's moving across the network and apply the classified signature detection to it. And there's only a few companies that can do that. This is a capability that we provide, we can provide for ourselves. This is also a capability that we can provide to other networks as part of the enhanced cybersecurity program. DHS has authorized us to provide this to certain critical infrastructure providers too. So like power grids and other critical manufacturing providers. And and so this is a really exciting capability. Yeah, it is. And there's so much going on out there. It's like, I mean, even the person who's completely disconnected from all this can read about it all the time in the news that this stuff is going on. So it's a great capability for Viasat to be on top of. Yeah. Um, hey, switching gears, uh, last fall, we announced that we're working with the uh, the US DOD on 5G research. So yeah. what's that all about? Yeah. And, and so th- this is an nascent area where we've won, um, we've won three different contracts over the last year, but th- this is this is early research and this is early basically experimentation with how could we use 5G for command and control, C2 applications, and how can we use tactical network deployments at the edge? And so one of the things that we're doing is we're looking at 
you know, can we create like a, a deployable, a quick deployable, really smart 5G base station so that, you know, elements could deploy it right at the edge and then you have basically instant 5G connectivity. And so you can use your existing 5G devices on, on the battlefield. And th this is an exciting area of research. And I'll digress here for a second and talk about what, what 5G is. And it's 5G is a, a really all encompassing standard. And, you know, most of us probably think about the 5G waveform. And that is one thing that 5G is. It's a, it's a very specific set of communications protocols that the handsets use to communicate with the base station. But 5G also has a networking standard associated with it that encompasses a great deal more. And 5G networks are capable of supporting transport layers that don't use a 5G waveform. And, and there's a lot of really interesting features built into 5G, including things that are typically associated with software-defined networking, things like network slicing and flow-based routing and, and dynamic routing. Th those are all included in 5G as well. And so when you think about the 5G networking standard, that gets a lot back to what we were talking about with JADC2 is that a, as a way to connect a variety of different kinds of networks over different media and at different security levels and bringing them all together. And so this is where we're doing a little bit of research too, is can we do sort of flow-based routing and intelligent routing over, you know, Link16 and Trellisware networks at the same time, or Leo and Geo networks at the same time. And, you know, putting a 5G wrapper around those kind of capabilities makes for instant compatibility with a lot of devices. And when I was talking earlier about, we have to learn the lessons of the internet about creating gateway capabilities and bridging different transport media together seamlessly so that your device doesn't even really know or you don't really even know. And 5G is a potential way, there's probably other ways, but 5G is a widely adopted computer standard that has a lot of capabilities that are applicable to the JADC2 mission. And so this is, this is a really exciting area of research and development that we're involved in, and we're really happy to be working with the DOD in this area. So uh, just to understand, like, when you're talking about uh, devices, does this mean like you could, you know, someone could use their their cell phone uh, instead of having a purpose-built, you know, whatever kind of radio? That is absolutely one potential use case where you could just, so one of the things is this happens all the time anyway. And so even in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, soldiers were using their cell phones because their tactical radios didn't always work. Well. <laughs> oh, no. And so, you know, they have these things and they use them. And so why not create systems that let you use them in the secure, appropriate way? So one of the use cases is you could use the off-the-shelf cell phone to use it for comms in an emergency. Another use case is, you know, there's ubiquitous, very cheap 5G chipsets, and you could make ruggedized military radios with some modifications to the 5G waveform that make the waveform more secure. And then you could have a 5G handset that isn't your cell phone, but also doesn't cost hundreds of thousands of dollars for a military radio. And that's the promise of this is being able to tweak it to make it just a little bit better than what it does now and put the hooks for secure modes or, or other operational modes and still having these widely proliferated capabilities and maybe very low cost military radios that everyone could have, or maybe using their cell phone if they have to. So some, some taxpayer savings there too, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and when we talk about having to not being able to outspend our adversaries anymore. These are the type of things we have to do. We have to leverage commercial innovation that's already being done. And if there's ubiquitous capabilities, how can we use that for warfighter effects? 
So uh, some of our conversation has touched on what's known as SATCOM as a service, which is you know a growing part of the commercial space industry. Do you want to uh, talk a little bit more about uh, what the future is for that with the military, the opportunities yeah. that might be there? Yeah. And as a scene center for that, historically, a big part of what the military has done is they've created their own purpose-built constellations. And usually what that means is they build a satellite and they have some contractor build a satellite and then they have some other contractor build a ground station and they have some other contractor build a, a terminal and maybe somebody else does the networking. And so they, they sort of create these ecosystems this way. And, and that's actually how the DOD has bought commercial SATCOM over the, the past 20, 30 years too, is they'll, they'll lease a transponder from somebody, somebody else builds the terminal, somebody else builds the ground station and the networking is, is somebody else sometimes too. And I think everyone listening to this podcast has probably heard Mark, Mark D or others talk about how that, that's a terrible way to build a SATCOM network. You have to build it as an integrated whole or you sacrifice efficiencies all over the place and there's trades you can't make and you introduce incompatibilities across the interfaces. And so SATCOM as a service is the sort of answer to the integrated satellite networks that we provide. And that, that gives you all the benefits of when you buy a network as a service, you get all the advantages in terms of economics, performance, security, flexibility that an integrated network brings you. And that that's the value proposition of SATCOM as a service. And the, the, the people that buy SATCOM in the government, they are starting to realize this, that they get more bang for their buck. It works better. It's safer. It's more secure. It's more reliable. And so th they understand this. And so they are starting to buy SATCOM as a service like anything uh, this involves a cultural change and it's hard. And so, you know, cultural change is always harder than technological change. And so they're used to, they're so used to buying the pieces and integrating that buying as a service is, is a different business model that's slowly gaining steam, but nonetheless, it is gaining steam and will continue to. And as a service will be the future of SATCOM for the military, just like cloud as a service will be. And, you know, IT as a service will be you know, the military outsources IT, the military for large part outsources cloud. 20 years from now, the military will look back and say the military outsources almost all commercial SATCOM. And that will be the model. And the other thing you'll see as that business model changes, you'll see more flexibility. They'll be able to change to consumption-based models and they'll be able to buy by the gigabyte used instead of just reserving transponders and paying for them whether they use them or not. And that, that's an exciting cost savings as well. Yeah, and it's a great comparison to, you know, you were talking about 5G earlier. It's like, you know, the military didn't go out and create cell networks on its own or build cell phones and things like that. So it's, it's kind of an interesting analogy to SATCOM as a service yep. kind of moving in that direction. And one of the reasons why the military had its own networks is for a long time, the military was the leader in space. There wasn't a ton of commercial space 30 years ago, sure. but now there is. And, and generally, you know, the commercial sector is quite a bit larger than the defense sector in the United States. And so there's more money, there's more research, there's more innovation. And any, anything commercial does, they're usually going to be at the cutting edge of the technology curve. And it, it's important for the, for the DOD to recognize what commercial does and use that and what commercial doesn't and then build that. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So, uh, well, I think a great place to end here is to talk about Viasat 3, which you touched on earlier. You know, it's our upcoming global satellite constellation, and it's going to have an enormous boost in both capacity and coverage. So uh, at the top level, what are a few of the things we'll be able to bring to government and military customers with uh, with Viasat 3? Yeah, Viasat 3 is super exciting. And obviously, I, I spent a lot of my, the last five years of my career working with or near Viasat 3. 
And so I'm very excited about this. And you know, at its core, Viasat 3 is the culmination of what we've been doing at Viasat here for the last 15 years since we started designing Viasat 1, which was a phenomenally successful satellite, right? And was the highest capacity satellite on orbit from its time in launch in 2011 to almost 2017. We learned a bunch of lessons and put them into Viasat 2, uh, which is still the highest capacity satellite on orbit. And then we learned a bunch more lessons from that, and those go into Viasat 3, which will be the highest capacity satellites in orbit by far. And so each Viasat 3 satellite has way over a terabit per second of capacity. And so when we think about the, the constellation of three Viasat 3s that we're going to be bringing online basically in the next year and change, this is an order of magnitude increase in capacity available to Viasat. And so with the, with the satellites we have, right now with Viasat 1, Viasat 2, Anik F2, uh, Wild Blue, KASAT, you know, Viasat, the three Viasat 3s are going to be 10 times more capacity than all of those put together. And so just having 10 times more capacity, basically, I mean, the, the ramifications for the commercial side of the business are obvious. You know, we can serve 10 times more users or we can give our users 10 times more capacity or any anywhere in between that. And so that, that gives us all kinds of levers to grow the business or to provide better services. And so that that's super exciting. And all, all of that applies to the military and defense side as well. So it will give us global capability, which we don't have right now. And so we'll be able to operate pretty much anywhere on Earth. And that, that's table stakes for a lot of the government missions. So that opens the door to a, a wide variety of missions that we're not able to effectively serve right now because we'll be everywhere. But then the amount of pure capacity we have is going to let us offer services that others can't. And so we're going to be able to outperform our competitors in a couple different dimensions just because of the capacity. One of the other things that's really special about Viasat 3, and it's, you know, this is something we could talk about all day for another podcast. And I, I know others have, but without going deep into the engineering of it, when you design for capacity, you make a bunch of design decisions that also wind up being exactly the same design decisions that you would make when you design for resilience and resistance to interference. For, for a variety of reasons, it turns out that maximizing capacity is maximizing anti-jam and it's not a side effect. It's actually designed that way from the ground up. And so because Viasat 3 is the highest capacity satellite by far in existence, it'll also be the best performing anti-jam satellite in existence. And so Viasat 3 will be incredibly difficult to disrupt. And so jamming is a highly successful and it's a highly commonly used effect in, in wartime. And we've seen it used in some of the regional conflicts in, in the last few years. And we've seen it used very successfully successfully against existing SATCOM systems. Viasat 3 is going to be very difficult to do that too. So you're going to have a system that has a ton of capacity that works when our adversaries are trying to make it stop working. And so that, that's really important. So the ability to keep working, even when the, the enemy is putting interference at it, is what sets Viasat 3 apart from basically all other systems and there, there's systems that have specific anti-jam features but viasat 3 is going to outperform them and it's even going to outperform some purpose-built military satellites in that regard and so that's that's a really exciting capability and so we're really excited about being able to bring all this capacity and all this resilience associated with it the other thing is the flexibility about viasat 3 and the, this is something we've learned over a decade of providing satellite networks is capacity demand isn't static. And so we need to be able to move data around. We need to be able to peanut butter spread it, 
but sometimes we need to be able to put it all in one place. And there, there's lots of examples. You know, the Super Bowl last weekend, there's lots of users in one place and you want to put a lot of capacity in one place. Hub airports are another example, right? And so for the commercial in-flight connectivity, there, there's many hundreds of planes around Atlanta's airport or around the New York area. And so you want to have this incredible capacity density to be able to serve them all at the same time. And this is something that Viasat 3 is really, really good at. And by the way, that's something that Leos are really bad at. Leos are peanut butter spreaders. They can't concentrate their capacity in one region because of the orbital dynamics. But Viasat 3 can do this. And this is important in the defense case too, because you have theater hotspots. And so if you think about some of the past conflicts, you know, in Afghanistan, where we've needed a ton of capacity around Tora Bora, where we're chasing the Taliban, or if you think about the geopolitical things that are in the news today, if there's some Eastern Europe Eastern European country that turns into a hotspot, sure would be nice to put terabits of capacity or something close to a terabit of capacity right into a small region over Europe. Now, ISAT 3 can't put all of its capacity in one place, but can put a good chunk of its capacity in a small place. And being able to do that is really important for surge capacity and the ability to be flexible. Right. And then the kind of the other, the third or fourth leg of the stool is that whole coverage uh, thing. So, you know, when you think about the connectivity that we provide just to senior leader aircraft uh, for the U.S., uh, it's kind of patched together with different networks right now. Uh, and Viasat 3 will just enable to be all, all on the same one. It will allow them to use a single network. And so we'll have a single network that has connectivity everywhere and performance everywhere. But our intent is that we will continue to offer that patchwork of networks. And so we won't have to offer the patchwork and network because we don't have coverage, but we'll choose to offer a patchwork of networks because it provides resilience and it provides optionality. And so that that's really important. And it's sort of a mini case of JADC2, right? Instead of having just one asset. So for example, if somebody found a way to interfere with Viasat3 or a cyber attack against Viasat3. And so we're really good at defending against all of those things, but nothing's ever perfect having the ability to quickly just roam onto another network um, and provide a near seamless experience is the ultimate in resilience. And we're gonna continue to offer that for our senior leader and our defense users at large. And then one of the other things is, is hybridizing networks gets you the value of geo and the value of other orbits at some time. So again, if you, if you consider a hybridized network where maybe you have flow-based routing where certain data that that is very latency sensitive, moves over a LEO or a MEO network, and the bulk of the other data moves over the GEO network, you get the economics and the capacity density of GEO and the latency of the other orbits all at the same time. And it's the best of both worlds. And that, that's one of the things that we're really good at is bringing those networks together and understanding the value of different networks and how to move data around them appropriately. Wow. So yeah, there's a whole lot there and a whole lot more to come. So uh, Craig Miller, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through uh, the government systems side of ISAT, which is a really, uh, you know, just growing and, and fascinating part of our business. And uh, it really seems like uh, you're gonna have to stick around for another 25 years uh, to see all this stuff come to fruition. First, thanks for having me. This, this has been really fun. Obviously, I'm very passionate about this. I'm really excited about the technology and I'm really excited about the markets and the way we can bring technology to help our warfighters and to help our country. And that's that's why I get out of bed every day. And that's why I'm excited about coming to work every day. And, you know, I'm not going anywhere. And so I'm going to keep doing this until they kick me out of here. All right. Well, Greg Miller, thanks so much. And uh, we'll catch up with you again when uh, later on in the, in the year and see what else is going. Absolutely, Alex. Thanks again for having me. Look forward to talking to you again. 
Thanks for listening to the Viasat Podcast. If you know someone you think would be interested in what you've heard on this episode, please share. You can always find the latest episodes on our blog at viasat.com, and you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or just about anywhere you get your podcasts. 